Hi, welcome to 1823 Podcast. I'm Stuart Arrowsmith. In this episode, with just a few tense weeks remaining in the Premier League title race, we're talking mind games, squeaky bum time, the importance of psychology in sport. We all know that if we're struggling day to day, our job can be harder. And athletes are no different, so it's about ensuring for me that they're in the best mindset to be able to cope I've worked with a number of players that actually need pressure to perform to their best ability. So I think we've got these sort of connotations and this assumption that as soon as someone's under pressure they're going to crack. But with sport I'd say there's a recognition that, that needs to be made that actually pressure can be really good. There is quite a lot of support in place for, for the players uh, within that particular environment um, which I think is essential, you know, that the players need to be able to, to focus on the football side of things and not worry too much about off the field things. You're listening to 1823 Podcast. Well, I don't know about you, but the nerves have well and truly kicked in for me in the Premier League title race. We fans have our own ways of dealing with the tension and the excitement, from poring over the permutations from the remaining fixtures to relying on our lucky pants or other superstitions. In this episode, we're taking a look at how the competitors themselves handle the pressure to succeed. How do sportsmen and women use sports psychology to prepare for and cope with the demands of competition? Later in the episode, we'll discuss life at a Premier League football club and how it supports its players with an LJMU alumnus. First, I'm joined by Dr Rob Morris and Alice Stratford. Rob is a senior lecturer in sports social science at LJMU and the programme leader for science and football. Alice is a PhD researcher here and also works with Liverpool and Everton's women's Super League teams. Uh, Thanks to you both for joining me on the podcast today. This episode is essentially therapy for me and you're going to reassure me that even if I'm feeling the pressure, Liverpool's players and coaching staff are are not. Um, Now you both have a lot of academic and industry experience in this area. What are experts like you aiming to achieve when you go in to start working with with a team or an individual? For me, fundamentally, it's about ensuring that athlete is in the best position psychologically um, to be able to cope with uh, whatever the sport or their, their life is, is thrown at them at that particular moment in time. Um, so we, we often talk about sports psychology being very much focused on performance, um, but performance also then relates to what's going on in their, their personal life, their private life. So if there's challenges within their private life, um, of course, it's going to impact how they're then then feeling. If we think about it from a um, a, a normal person perspective, um, we all know that if we're struggling day to day, our job can be harder. And, and athletes are no different. So it's about ensuring, for me, that they're in the best mindset to be able to cope uh, with, with the demands that are presented. Hmm. I think I'd echo that, and I'd also say that psychology or a psychologist is one of the only positions within sort of a sports environment that looks at the athlete as a whole person and is making sure that they're all right and then their performance follows whereas all other positions all other support staff such as your physios your SNCs are are directly looking at their ability to perform sort of physically and that's first and foremost and they're not really that bothered about the situation that they're going home to or or what they're facing day to day like Rob said outside of sport whereas for us the prevalence for us is very much the whole holistic person rather than just that athlete and, and not being concerned with anything else so I think that's probably why. Yeah and football particularly was quite insular for a long time wasn't it in its kind of approach quite close-minded to, to new ideas um, you know whether it be nutrition whether it be 
psychology. Um, but when I when I go to clubs with my sports reporter hat on now, they have their armies of experts. They've become much more open-minded now, haven't they, in terms of anything that will get that extra percentage point of performance out of somebody, they're, they're prepared to look at it. Yeah, definitely. And I think with football, as you've said, with its closed-mindedness, they don't want to be the first one to try it in case it goes wrong. But then as soon as a competitive team's got it and they think they might have the edge there, it's right, we need it and we need to be the best of the best at it. So I think in terms of the the growth in psychology over the last couple of years and, and seasons in football, that could explain it because it's very much, we don't want to be the guinea pigs for testing this out, but as soon as someone else has done it and invested time and money in it, it's, right, well, we need to be better at it than, than they are. Mm. But would different clubs approach it in a different way? Like when you guys go into clubs or work with individuals, are you being asked to deliver the same work or would that sort of be guided by the coach of that club? Yeah, I mean, it's it's... Partly by the coach, but it's partly by the um, even the hierarchy of the, the, the organisation. I, I think you tend to find that different clubs have very different approaches. Uh, so some will ask you to work individually with players. Uh, some will ask you to work at a cultural level, so trying to support the, the, the culture and develop the culture so that it is conducive to uh, early performance. Some will ask you to work with coaches um, and some will ask you to do all of the above. And I think that the biggest thing really is, um, more than anything, is, is whether you're in contact day-to-day with, with those athletes or whether actually you're sometimes just parachuted in for mm-hmm. um, one day a week. Um, and that can have a big impact on the, the amount of work and what you can actually do. Has the nature of this side of the game, motivation, psychology, has that changed over the years? Because it seems that, particularly in football, for a long time it was a kind of a positive reinforcement of people's own qualities but now it's very much used as a weapon isn't it you know from the press conference at the end of the previous game it's all about building up the pressure on the opponent you know trying to lean on the referee plant seeds of doubt in their mind has it changed over the years yeah i mean i i, I think it has changed i think people are using it more uh, to, to do exactly what you've just said but um, I can remember back to when I was young and said Alex Ferguson and Kevin Keegan mm-hmm. and that whole situation and, and I, I suppose to some extent we forget about those particular events and how they've um, been perceived because uh, I think th- that's probably a prime example of psychology being used in a press conference um, even though at that particular stage we probably didn't see it as, as such but you, you see coaches and managers now using it much more, mm-hmm. more often uh, from that perspective and uh, I think I think that's the, the development that's perhaps happened. Yeah, I, that was probably the first time we started to hear about mind games and in inverted commas, Absolutely. wasn't it? Absolutely, and I mean, you, you, Sir Alex Ferguson was a, was a really good example of somebody who was able to do that um, all the way through his career, and there's, there's good examples of Benitez and, and, the, and the likes, and, and that's all from him developing and building up the pressure on opposition managers, opposition players. But when I look at it from the outside, I always think it's, it's very transparent what they're trying to do, isn't it? I mean, surely that doesn't work. I mean, it worked with Kevin Keegan and the famous example you mentioned, but surely now it's become such a key part of the game that everyone else sees through it and kind of thinks, right, OK, I know what they're doing there. I know what reaction they're trying to get from me. I think it's human nature to react, though, uh, to, to a large extent. And particularly if somebody's trying to put you under pressure, um, the, the human response eventually gets to the stage where you, you, you do just respond. And and sometimes because it's been developed over such a period of time, um, it can be the straw that breaks the camel's back. 
And when we talk about the pressure that's on um, competitive sports, men and women, where does most of the pressure come from? Is that from external factors like the media, like the fans, or is it more what they demand of themselves? I think it can come from sort of a, a trio of things. It'll come from themselves and it'll come from whether they're intrinsically or extrinsically motivated, what they're sort of doing in, in other aspects of their life and how they're putting pressure on themselves to perform. Obviously, everyone will have individual internal goals, so it'll be from there. It'll be from completely external factors such as the media, such as things that they've got no control of, how they're perceived by their fans, like you say, what, what other players or other clubs are saying about them, how they're being targeted. And the third is it'll come from their coaches and their teammates if they're sort of perceived to be dragging the team down or, or not performing to where they should be, then that'll be where, where that third level of stress will come from. So I think it's it's completely dependent on the player themselves. It's completely dependent on the culture that they're submerged in. And then as a third sort of extra thing, there'll be those elements that they're never going to be able to control. And it'll be how they either learn to deal with them or learn to ignore them. Because essentially... You can't control the media and the majority of stuff that does come from the media is, is negative. It's very rare that you'll get a consistent positive feedback because even if you look at Liverpool, they've, they've had a really great season so far. But fundamentally, as soon as they lose a game or, or even draw or they do something in a game that, that's not quite right, they're, they're straight under the, the light, they're straight under the microscope. So I think you'd have to say that you could never pinpoint it down to one thing. It's going to be an interaction of the three. It just depends which one of those is stronger at the time. Mm. Can you strengthen anyone's psychological resilience in sport or, or do you have to have it as a sort of innate quality anyway to start with? I mean, you, you can certainly develop it. Um, it, it. I think it how you develop it very much varies from context to context um, and very much varies depending upon the individual athletes that, you, that you're working in. Um, Within certain organisations within football, you, you might look to um, get players involved in, in understanding the culture that they're in, uh, get them to understand um, the key values and approach of that organisation. Um, and, and you often hear um, that, that of, of failures and how people cope with those failures. I think fundamentally failure is part of sport and it's about how you then respond and react to that. And um, part of our job uh, as psychologists is to help players manage and cope with that and actually learn from those negatives. So you're going to experience challenges within professional sport, uh, whether that's injuries, whether that's defeats, but it's how you then respond to that that helps you develop, and, um, I suppose, develop your, your resilience to, mm. to those elements. And how does the pressure affect a sportsman or woman's decision-making? I think... For me and from my experience, it's how the pressure changes what their focus is. So you would say that a player that's got no sort of pressure on them, they know what they're going to do and they know how they're going to they're gonna conduct it or they're going to hope to carry it out. Obviously in team sports it's different because you're relying on the other 10 men to also be having the exact same sort of focus. But as pressure comes into it, whether it be related to the game, whether it be something they've got externally that's going on, it's going to sort of take that focus out of alignment. And then it's Rob and I's job to work out why that focus has changed and what elements are we going to develop or work on to bring it back into alignment. Um, I think you could argue that pressure can affect a player in 
hundreds of different ways and you can never predict a way that someone's going to react under pressure until it happens some people react sort of internally and and it sort of is all inside them and they look fine but actually they're not and then you'll see players on the pitch that are having absolute nightmare and they'll go and get in a fight or they'll visibly react and so it's it's sort of that that focus that changes that's how the pressure affects them I don't think, and Rob will agree or disagree, that you could ever sort of anticipate or predict how someone's going to react or how pressure's going to affect them because even if one player's affected one way this week, two weeks' time, it could be completely mm. different. There is no link or predicting factors, if you like, to to how it's going to affect them. Um, I guess all we could say is maybe you know it's going to happen but you're not quite sure when or when or where, which is sort of where we're brought in to try and anticipate it, prevent it from happening, but if it does then happen, how can we help support the player go through it? Yeah, I mean, I, I can only echo that. I think I think pressure in itself is, is not um, a concept that we can really predict. I mean, some how I might feel under pressure might be completely different to how you feel under pressure. And I think as a consequence, how you then react to that and the behaviours that you uh, exude could be completely different. Um, and particularly when you're you're kind of coming up to a major competition or a major event, we often we often hear about this idea that pressure is enhanced, and the only reason it's enhanced is because actually I perceive it to be more difficult, not necessarily because of the situation. Fundamentally, it's still a game of football, or it's still a game of badminton or tennis or whatever it is. That is still the sport that you're playing. It's no different from when you played it when you were a kid, but it's because of the situation you've been put in um, that creates that pressure and then the reaction subsequent mm. to that. I think as well the important thing to recognise is how a player deals with pressure is completely dependent on them and I've worked with a number of players that actually need pressure to perform to their best ability mm. so I think we've got these sort of connotations and this assumption that as soon as someone's under pressure they're going to crack because we think of exams in school or when people are under pressure to do well at work and, and they're not behaving well but actually there's some players who start of the season when there's not that much pressure on them that they'll go out and they'll perform at 70-75% but in the last few games of, of the league where the, it really is crucial that they need to get the three points that's when you'll see them performing at the best so I think we've sort of generally as a society think that pressure is a negative thing but especially with sport I'd say there's a recognition that, that needs to be made that actually pressure can be really good and sometimes it's a psychologist's job to make sure that when there's no pressure the player stays motivated because there seems to be less reasons to, to be motivated to go out and perform well every week. The, the only reason we have pressure is because somebody cares about the situation. Mm. That's, the, that's the reason pressure is there is because actually you care about what you're going into and what you're about to do. And I think as well there's a saying that um, pressure is a privilege and echoes what Rob said is that you're only actually going to get pressure if you, you're doing something right and you've done something well. If you just sort of toddle along at the same level, the coach is never going to expect anything more from you. Your teammates, anyone else isn't going to expect anything more from you. So there's going to be no pressure. But as soon as you do something well, there's pressure to do it well again. So I think it's it's definitely sort of that is this pressure negative? Does it necessarily need to have a negative effect or can we actually build on it and go, well, I've done something right here because I feel pressured to do it again. Hmm. And I guess that's where we get the concept of big game players, Definitely. the people who rise to the occasion yeah, as well. Yeah, 
and the the players that pull it out of the bag because mm. they've needed that pressure in the bag in the first place to be able to take it back out. Mm. But um, yeah, every player's different. I think so. That's something that we've definitely got to be aware of and and making sure that there's no one size fits all in terms of pressure. It's you've just got to sort of take it as it comes and is presented to you. And is that perhaps where we see the difference sometimes between? the players that a coach will turn to in pressure moments might not always be the ones that the supporter or the commentator would turn to because he knows what the you know the the mindset of that individual will be you know the manager's favorites who think why is he picking him or why is he bringing him on yeah. the manager knows exactly what he's going to get from him yeah i think i mean i think there's a lot of examples of exactly that so if you think of um, some of the, the the best teams of the last 10 15 years there's there's times where um, players have been picked. Darren Fletcher is a good example for Manchester United. Hardly played any games in terms of um, your, your normal run in the mill, but would be picked for the the biggest games. Mm. Um, and you see that. I mean, you've seen it at, at all different teams, and, and it, it really is about the manager knowing fundamentally what they're going to get from that player. Um, so when they are put under pressure in those big games or perceived big games. They're not going to change their approach or the way they think about things. They're going to respond and react. Um, and I think, I mean, with with pressure as well, there's obviously or there can be um, negative reactions and responses. What you tend to find is the best players um, are able to use the pressure as a way to facilitate the performance, and they're not going to react in a negative way. You're listening to 1823 podcast. Conscious, we're talking a lot about players here but what about coaches as well do you guys work with them is there a lot of work needed to kind of help them deal with it because you know ultimately in the more cutthroat sports like football one wrong decision could leave them out of work they may not get back in again that must be a huge pressure on them yeah I mean I think more so now than probably 10 years ago um, 10-15 years ago when I started uh, as a sports psychologist I think the coaches have become a real focus of sports psychology work and it's a lot of it is to do with the way they react and respond to, to pressure um, and make decisions under pressure um, because they, as you say, they're fundamentally making a decision about um, an individual player, whether or not to play them, which could have a, con- uh, a subsequent effect on the Monday morning when they go back into training. Um, it could have an effect on whether or not they win the game. So they're making these decisions that, that have a massive effect on potential outcomes um, as a consequence of that uh, they, they, they do feel pressure of course they do um, and a lot of our work um, that can now is, is helping them to, to manage um, and make sure they can justify decisions and, uh, and and communicate appropriately with people as well so I guess the danger is that moments of real pressure they don't back their instincts and they they kind of allow external forces to dictate what they're going to do yeah and they can become a bit clouded so normally when they, they would make a decision when there was a, no pressure or there's less pressure um, those decisions become harder to make so normally the, if they were picking this particular player and that's the the go-to decision as soon as there's a bit of pressure they can start to perceive that in a slightly different way and we'll maybe look at well maybe that's not the best decision. And as a consequence, everything becomes a bit grayed uh, and muddy. And the decisions might not be uh, the, the best ones that they can make. Hmm. You mentioned before, Alice, working with individuals as well as uh, teams. How does that differ from your point of view in, in terms of working with a group of people as opposed to an individual? I think 
from my experiences working with a team is very much driven by my perceptions of what the team need to work on and also the coaches' perceptions. Um, how are you going to deliver those sort of things as a group that are going to develop the team? So they'll be a typical thing, sort of performing under pressure, what's the values and the philosophies of the club or the team and how are the individuals going to work together to make sure that they're they're performing at the highest level that they can each week whereas your your one-to-one work is that's driven by the player that's the that's where they're going to come in and say I'm feeling like this or I think I need to work on this and that's where that interaction is going to happen um stuff that you do with the team will be very much what what anyone will predict that psychology is going to be it can sort of be skills training anxiety coming back from injuries your classic psychological aspects if you like Whereas the majority of the time from my experience, and I'm not sure whether Rob will agree or not, but working one-on-one with the players is it's sort of developing them in a way that on paper you wouldn't think has got anything necessarily to do with football or whatever sport. It's something that's developing them as an individual. And then in the long run, it's that that will help them to be a better athlete. And I think that's where the main differences lie. Yeah, I mean, I think at a group um, or a team level, you, you're very much looking at what can help every single person in this environment. An individual sport, um, and even working with, with, with team athletes individually, you, you tend to find the athletes know what they want to discuss and know what they want to develop. Um, and the key difference there is is just being facilitator of that and allowing them to, to have those conversations and, and start to work with them in those mm. areas. Does it take greater mental resilience to succeed as an elite individual sportsman or woman than in a team where you kind of share the burden with everybody else you know you think of somebody like Serena Williams or you know picking up on Rob's accent you know Stephen Hendry or someone like that you know to just to be out there for hours on your own just with your own thoughts your own doubts your own fears and trying to overcome those must be so hard at the very top level I think um, one of the things I would say to that is it's um, it could be easier to react if you've got a teammate around about you. So, so if you're making a mistake or you're you're struggling with your performance for whatever reason that might be, um, th- there's other people around about you to support that and facilitate that and, and help you um, in that situation. Whereas when you're performing as an individual, uh, you, you are very much out there on your own. You're, you're there with your thoughts. And we see it sometimes when, when people do have those... Um, breakdowns if you want to put it that way uh, when, when they're performing and uh, the, the reaction that they uh, have to that situation is not conducive to performance you talked about Serena Williams there in the US Open last year the, the one thing you would say regardless of anything else is there's absolutely no way that helped her perform mm. um, and if she had a teammate who was sat next to her at some point they would probably have said look leave it it's done let's move on uh, but because that wasn't there that opportunity wasn't there, it's, it's harder to react and respond. Mm. In practical terms, what are you encouraging the sportsmen and women to do when it comes to dealing with their mental resilience? You know, what are the practical steps you would ask them to take? I think to start off with, it's they've got to know themselves and they've got to know themselves as an athlete and they've got to know themselves in a, as an individual and know where those two intertwine. I think that there can be real strengths in being able to identify what you can cope with and what you have coped with in the past, both as an athlete, as an individual, and sort of how did you cope with those? What 
skills have you used that work for you and what do you know doesn't work for you because someone could tell you to go and do relaxation techniques but actually if when you're needing to deal with something it's much better for you to go out and deal with it physically whether that be going to the gym or or just going to practice then you need to know what it is that works best for you in order to develop your resilience and I think as well it comes from your, your environment where you've grown up in, your family situation, all those different strings, if you like, will come together to develop your mental resilience. But I think there's a lot to be said for for coming through things and having to deal with challenges and struggles and see how you've grown from them, reflecting on that and then looking to how you can use that going forwards. Mm. Um, I think it's very difficult to be able to know how you're going to deal in the face of adversity having one never done it before and two never thought about it so I think as psychologists to start off with getting to know an athlete in that situation that's what it would definitely be my starting point um, and then you'd start to build in maybe some more fundamental psychological skills and, and traditional coping mechanisms but I think for me you can't start to understand mental resilience without starting to understand the individual as a whole. I mean, I can, I can only echo that and, and just say, I think, I mean, resilience comes from adversity and, and uh, understanding challenging situations you might be in. So one of the other ways you might do that is is put people under pressure. Um, so uh, in training, in matches, whatever it might be, put them under pressure. Um, and you're almost at that stage developing their ability to react and respond to, to negative situations that they might be in. So so it might be that actually um, if you complete this task, uh, so say it's a, a penalty kick task, if you all score a penalty kick, we'll go home early. So you, as soon as the, the last person comes and everybody else has hit a penalty and there's 20 people sitting waiting behind you, um, and you're the last one, you're going to feel the pressure. And if you miss, everybody's starting again. So it's it's putting people under pressure so that they can react and respond to mm. um, the, the situation they might be in. If you're thinking about that, replicating that in terms of if that was a penalty shootout in a World Cup, okay, you're never going to be able to replicate that sort of level of, of stress and pressure, but actually if we're going to get away two hours early and we can go and spend time with our, our children or whatever it might be, mm. th- there's, there's going to be an element of, of stress and pressure to that. And can we apply those techniques outside of sport as well in our everyday lives whether it's coping with you know exam pressures work stress home life are they transferable those kind of techniques and skills yeah absolutely and i mean if you're thinking about exams and and the likes we often talk about overtraining and and being over prepared for uh, the situation you're in because if you've been through something that's particularly vigorous and particularly um detailed when you actually get to the final event it's it's not as highly pressured because you, you know that you're going into it having a solid ground and whatever that might be. Okay, great. Thanks, Rob and Alice, for joining us on the podcast today. That's Dr. Rob Morris and Alice Stratford. 1823 Podcast. In this final section of the episode, let's find out more about life inside a Premier League football club. What kind of support is there to help players cope with the pressures of competing at the highest level? Jansen Moreno is a senior analyst at Huddersfield Town Football Club and he graduated from LJMU with a Masters in Sports Psychology in 2012. Jansen, thanks for joining us on the podcast. You're welcome. Before we talk about your role at Huddersfield and the work that you're doing now, let's just go back a little bit to your time at LJMU. What did you study? What are the kind of things you took from your time here into your professional career? Um, well, I started my undergrad in 2008. I did um, science and football. 
uh, graduated in uh, 2011 and then went on to do a master's in sports psychology. Um, so yeah, so my time here was really, really good. Uh, enjoyed it quite a lot, quite insightful. Um, learned quite a lot here, to be fair. The, the lectures and the, the teaching side was, was excellent. Uh, made many friends and yeah, had great experiences. Um, the course was fantastic, uh, basically sports science um, solely related to, to football, which is the area I wanted to focus on. So in that sense, it was a, a good course to, to go through. Mm. And then to set you up for you know a successful career since then, you've you've got a lot of experience in the years since you graduated. Yeah, I don't know about successful, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been um, it's been a, been a good experiences that I've had, um, thankfully. Um, so uh, when I was doing my uh, my masters, I did an internship at Everton, um, which was sports science and performance analysis sort of a split. Um, and I worked with the first team in academy, uh, predominantly doing the performance analysis side of things. Uh, which was which is a great experience, uh, great exposure to the environment, um, things that you see and you learn. That sort of uh, quite quite a good experience in that sense to set me up. Um, and then from there, uh, I left and had no sort of um, jobs to go to. So I I did a PGC um, in secondary MFL, and then um, with that I was doing part time coaching at Wigan Academy, uh, which was quite good. And then from there, I managed to get another internship at Brighton. And halfway through that season, they offered me a, a full-time role and then it sort of went from there, to be honest. Mm, great. And as I mentioned to Rob and Alice in the previous section, the, these are kind of jobs that, you know, 20 years ago, for instance, they, they probably didn't exist. But now you can't imagine a Premier League club without those roles. They're so crucial to what happens at a Premier League football club now. Yeah, 100%. Um, I remember when I first, first came over, there wasn't many sort of... I think analysis was starting to grow. Um, I personally hadn't heard of... Uh, performance analysis when I was in Gibraltar um, when I first came over and got introduced to it at my course and I really really enjoyed it I think it's very linked to coaching as well to the coaching side of it um, you know in terms of the tactics and, and stuff like that um, but yeah every club I think even clubs in in League 2 and in the conference now have sort of analysis and sports science departments um, you know it's a growing growing um, profession and it's uh, something that you know, most clubs and most managers will need nowadays and I think the players um, if they went to a club without that sort of support um, I think they'd find it quite strange because I think they're sort of used to it and now they're sort of it's part of their current day to day to get that sort of um, um, scientific support from uh, all the different type of areas so yeah well take us inside a Premier League football club then what what are the kind of different areas of expertise that are there to support players and to help them cope with the kind of the more off field aspects of the game yeah so there's a, there's a lot of support to be honest um, from my experiences in the different clubs I've been to um, in terms of the support um, mechanisms they're all pretty similar and other clubs that I've got uh, people that I know at, um, that work in other clubs, same sort of uh, processes and, and support mechanisms in place. Um, so, you know, you've got all the sports science, the the medical side, the sports science in terms of the strength and conditioning, the nutrition side, uh, make sure they're on a good diet, um, they've got good um, individual fitness programs, um, you know, they're eating the right way, they're training the right way, they're recovering the right way. Um, all of these uh, big departments and you've got the medical side as well obviously you've got the analysis to support them you know some clubs uh, do have uh, sports psychology support as well um, every club will have a, a player liaison officer if not two um, to get you know make sure the players especially the foreign players that sign 
in a particular club make sure they come over and they've um, you know they can just focus on their football so they'll sort out things like their house um, cars for them uh, for the family schools for the kids so there's there is quite a lot of support in place for for the players uh, within that particular environment um, which I think is essential you know that the players need to be able to, to focus on on the on the football side of things and not worry too much about off the th off the field um, things and try and get them to, to settle in as soon as possible and as quickly as possible. Just take away any kind of possible distraction that might might reduce their performance by even a, a percentage, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, just try and make them feel uh, feel comfortable and you know um, feel that they can relax and they can just get on with the football side of things. Um, it's which is it's very important, you know. And like I said, especially more for the. For the foreign players that sign um, with the language and stuff mm -hmm. like that, um, it's quite popular as well to have uh, player ladies and officers that are, you know can speak several languages. Um, you know, we have one at Huddersfield who who speaks, um, I think, he speaks about four languages. To be fair, and it, you know, it is a help for the foreign players that come in because you can straight away get a, a connection and um, they feel more at home if they know someone speaking their language and mm -hmm. their mother tongue. So in that sense, the the support in that area is is particular is is quite important to be honest. And important as well, I imagine that all of those different areas work together as well. Yeah, yeah, everyone's got to sort of work in conjunction and work together. Um, you know, making sure everything runs smoothly. Um, communication in a, in a in an environment like that is is particularly important. You know, everyone's on the same um, wavelength. Everyone knows what's going on. Um, just to make the the, the organisation flow correctly. So, mm -hmm. In your role as an analyst at Huddersfield, can you pick out mentality as an attribute in an opposing team or player based on previous performances? Um, yeah, it's, it's quite a difficult attribute to to analyse in that sense because it's quite you know, a broad, broad uh, attribute and hard to sort of objectively analyse in that sense. Um, you probably look at a team's mentality in terms of obviously if they've had a lot of momentum, if they've had a, a winning run, if they're stronger from away from home or, or at home. Um, you know, obviously you can see if the players are quite, if they're working hard off the ball and they're working together and they're running a lot, they're working hard for the team. These sort of things we'd probably attribute as a, having a, a strong mentality. Um, if they come back from losing positions um, within a game, obviously shows there's some sort of. Um, Mentality, the mental strength that they have and they possess. Um, so you might um, think like sending off red cards, bookings. Um, you might sort of look at that um, as a particular mentality attribute, but um, it's I wouldn't say something we particular folk and put a major focus on. Um, to be honest, it's mainly to see if if the team is it's quite an aggressive team defensively. If if you know if they work hard, if, uh, they run off the ball, but um, wouldn't say it's particular attribute you can really sort of focus on from an analysis perspective um, when you're doing sort of opposition work. Like I said, when I was at John Moore's, uh, it was where I got introduced to it and I, I fell in love with it, to be honest. It's a really, really good um, uh, good uh, area that I enjoyed and I like to, to work in. This is 1823 Podcast. That's Jansen Moreno, an LJMU alumnus and now a senior analyst at Huddersfield Town Football Club. Well, I've enjoyed chatting to my guests on this episode, Jansen, Rob and Alice, and I hope you have too. If you have, why not give us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts from and check out our other episodes. That's all for now. This episode was produced by Michael Humphreys. Our editor is Ben Jones. <laughs>